Welcome to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and I'm starting something a little different. Uh, this will be the first in what I'm hoping will become kind of an ongoing series that I'll just sprinkle in every now and again. Um, and it's, it's going to be about death row inmates, um, those who are still alive and those who are deceased. We'll talk about um, whatever history and background information I can find on them. We'll talk about their crimes their trial, conviction, subsequent appeals. Um, I love this stuff and it's, it'll be you know a combination of true crime and psychology and history and law. So I will, I will try to cover these cases as completely as possible. Again, sometimes it's difficult to find information on these people, but I will do my best. And another side note, um, Scout, my husky, she's got allergies right now and she is sitting under me. So if you hear like a weird dog cough wheeze noise, I did give her some peanut butter, but she still might cough a little bit. So I'm, I apologize ahead of time for that, but I'm just going to go ahead and get started. So today we are going to talk about Randy Winton Height. Randy Height. He was born somewhere on July 18, 1952, but his current home is the Kentucky State Penitentiary. According to the Kentucky Department of Corrections, Height is a 68-year-old white male with blue eyes and brown hair, standing at 5 foot 8 and weighing 155 pounds. So he's not a very big guy, but boy, he, he is capable of a lot. So he has kind of a fascinating rap sheet um, it spans across three states and at least five counties with a total of at least 22 convicted crimes, although I bet it's probably more. That's just the list that I could find. Um, he's been on death row at Eddyville, which is a supermax prison, also known as the Castle on the Cumberland, since his convictions of murder, robbery, and possession of a handgun by a convicted felon on March 22, 1994. So how this happened is really very fascinating. He was residing at the Johnson County Jail in Paintsville, Kentucky, when with the help of his girlfriend and accompanied by another male inmate, he successfully escaped while awaiting trial for another handful of crimes he'd committed. And this escape was on August 18, 1985. During the escape, he managed to steal guns. He stole multiple cars. He shot at a Kentucky State Police trooper. And he caused the death of another officer by friendly fire, which is a really sad story that I'll get into. But four days after his escape, on August 22nd, two bodies were found inside their car parked in Jared County, Kentucky, near Harrington Lake. I should have looked up how you pronounce that and I forgot. I think it's Jared, G-A-R-R-A-D. Um, but if you're unfamiliar, this is south of Lexington, sort of in between Nicholasville and Danville. The two victims were Patricia Vance, a 33-year-old dental assistant, and David Omer, a 40-year-old businessman. Vance had two children, Omer had three, trigger warning here if you don't like the details um, just fast forward a little bit Omar had been shot in the face chest shoulder and back of the head while Vance had been shot in the shoulder temple back of the head and through the eye 
Relatives of these victims, they sued the state corrections cabinet and Johnson County officials for $6.5 million. They accused the Johnson County Jail of operating in a, quote, dangerous, unsecure, or intentional manner that allowed prisoner Randy Height to escape. The suit alleged that, quote, Height's departure from the jail in Paintsville was a direct result of callous disregard or conspiracy between the defendants, agents, and or employees and persons unknown. The evening before his rearrest, Kentucky State Trooper Phil Yates stopped a vehicle that had been reported stolen. The driver fired a shot at Yates and fled the scene. This was Height. So a car chase ensued, and finally Height wrecked the stolen vehicle and continued to flee on foot, and he actually managed to evade the police for the rest of that evening. The following morning, a few witnesses reported seeing a man attempting to steal a car just north of Harrodsburg. Officers from multiple departments continued the search with dogs and aircraft. Thanks to evidence found in the stolen, wrecked vehicle, they knew at that point that they were following the person who murdered Omer and Vance. On August 23rd, the date of Heights recapture, Lexington police officer Roy Hobson Marty was accidentally fatally shot by police in a crossfire in Mercer County. He and his bloodhound, Amanda, had been assisting with the search to find Height and had successfully tracked him through a cornfield. The armed suspect ran out of the field with Marty following him, but unfortunately, the officer was shot in the process of apprehending him. Apparently, Height was shot during the altercation as well, though not fatally. Officer Marty was described by his friend and co-worker, Sergeant Artie Green, as, quote, concerned about doing the best job he could. He was the driving force behind the police bloodhound movement locally and nationally. He was an all-around decent and good man. He'd been on the force 13 years, which was impressive because that means he was only 22 when he joined, since he was only 35 when he passed away. In that time, he was awarded 61 commendations, and he was Officer of the Year that year, and was credited with starting the Police Athletic League, which is now known as the Police Activities League. He donated his time to Lexington children through his crime prevention and mentoring program while teaching them to play football. So in 1994, the name of the road in Lexington that leads into the K-9 unit training facility was officially changed to Roy Marty Drive. So Height was 33 years old when he murdered uh, Omer and Vance in their car. And by this time, he had spent all but two years of his 15 adult years in multiple prisons across various states. He had convictions in Madison, Johnson, Mercer, Lyon, and Jefferson counties. His crimes included two counts of robbery, two counts murder, one count possession of a handgun by a convicted felon, one count attempted murder for shooting at that police trooper while he had escaped, five counts theft by unlawful taking, and eight counts of burglary. Um, from what I could find, the convictions started around 1979 
and they go up all the way to 1993 when he was already on death row, but he got another charge, another a felony for promoting contraband while incarcerated. So he has appealed a lot, but with no luck. But his appeals are interesting, so I'm gonna get into them next. Height appealed to the Kentucky Supreme Court in November 1996. Subsequent rehearings were denied twice the next year. In the text from the Supreme Court ruling, it says the appellant asserted grounds for appeal ranging from deprivation and mistreatment as a child to arbitrary application of the law. So first, Height claimed that one juror, quote, engaged in misconduct by failing to make full disclosure of voir dire, by prematurely deciding contested issues, and by possibly furnishing prescribed information to other jurors. So this came from the fact that one juror read a newspaper article that referenced the case prior to reporting for jury duty. The juror said they scanned the article but didn't remember the headline or contents. He also claimed that the jury was led to believe a police officer was killed from being fired upon by Height himself. They said, no, that's not true. He claimed the jury wasn't chosen randomly. They said, yes, it was. He claimed the court coerced a penalty phase verdict. They said, no, there was no coercion. The jury was not ever even close to being deadlocked that we know of. Then he claimed errors in the trial's, quote, failure to give a specific instruction directing the jury to consider evidence of his childhood abuse and neglect and deprived family background. To which the response was, quote, the admission of evidence relating to abuse and neglect, deprived background, and mental retardation, followed by argument of counsel as to the significance of such evidence and the instruction described here and above, could have left no doubt in the mind of the jury that it had a right to consider such evidence in its penalty determination. A more specific instruction was not required. So after reading this, I did try to find more on his background to figure out what, what's, what he's talking about with this abuse or mental illness, and I just couldn't find anything more about it. So then he claimed that the trial court, quote, improperly required proof beyond a reasonable doubt that he acted under extreme emotional disturbance, EED, in its first degree manslaughter instruction. The response to which was that, quote, murder and first degree manslaughter statutes go hand in hand. Under the murder statute, if one commits the act while not under the influence of EED, he is guilty of murder. The statement goes on to say that Height's claim concerning the exclusion of evidence in regard to his parole eligibility on a previous conviction was, quote, irrelevant and properly excluded, and that his argument about the order of presenting the instructions to the jury was, quote, utterly without merit and deserves no further comment. And then it really starts to get in the weeds here because he talks about his conviction and his death sentence and that he just shouldn't even be eligible for the death sentence because of his 1986 plea agreement after which he was sentenced to death but then it was reversed on appeal. He said he was entitled to a non-death sentence because of that plea bargain and that the imposition of the death penalty was imposed in a quote arbitrary, freakish, discriminatory, and disproportionate manner. 
Basically, they said, yeah, your counsel tried to pressure the trial court into making such a commitment, but the court refused because it would have been unlawful. So it, it does get really complicated here, but if you're, if you're interested in reading all of this, I'll put it in the show notes if you want to check it out. I know you all are going to go read it for fun later. So he also claimed that, um, he, that there was double jeopardy. And this is what they said about that. Quote, the error of the trial court was not of the type and kind which re- precludes re-prosecution. The conduct of the trial court was ambiguous and misleading by virtue of a desire to accommodate counsel for both sides. There was no indication of malicious or deliberate misleading. The trial court simply made an error which was corrected on appeal. Double jeopardy principles do not preclude further prosecution with all lawful punishments being available which is really interesting. So they go on to say basically that it was Height's decision to withdraw his guilty plea and confession made during the plea proceeding, which means it waives his constitutional protection against double jeopardy. Then he claimed, there's more, that the state coerced the jury into the death penalty by bringing up his, quote, future dangerousness. They responded that they brought this up because it needed to be said that he'd been previously convicted of crimes several times and that he never seemed to change his behavior. It was necessary in this case to display his, quote, extraordinary history of violent criminal conduct to the jury. Finally, Haidt argued that the Kentucky death penalty statute is unconstitutional. Unfortunately, several other court cases have already upheld that the death penalty is constitutional, so whether we like it or not, there was no good argument there either. Height appealed to the Kentucky Supreme Court again in 2007. In this one, they tried to stir up some like jurisdiction issues, which the court rejected, followed by a claim that he was, quote, denied his right to counsel in the post-conviction proceeding because of conflicts of interest within the Department of Appellate Advocacy, that he should have been granted leave to amend and supplement his motion, that he was denied effective assistance of counsel at trial, etc., etc. None of this panned out, none of this worked at all, and he remains on death row. Height has briefly made the news a few other times regarding his comments on the prison system. He was involved in a 2010 lawsuit against the state for illegally restricting pastor visits. There was a specific incident where Robert Foley, who I'll definitely talk about in another episode, was granted a pastoral visit while Randy was not, even though they're both on death row and should be getting, you know, the same treatment. So, It sounds like there was a rule about visits that the prison had every right to enforce, but they'd been really lax about it for a long time. So around this time is when they started to enforce this rule. It was on the books, but it just, um, it was new to the prisoners. So they were, they were very frustrated about it. So Randy Height wrote to the warden in July, 2010, Quote, I'm still searching for the meaning or reason behind the denying of a pastoral visit. 
and he told the Associated Press, quote, most of us don't get visits from family regularly. Our pastors are all that we get. Who in the world would want to take one of the best things, one of the most fruitful things, away from us? It just don't make no sense. So, I mean, a lot of people, Randy, would want to take that from you. Um, but anyway, Eddieville, it is in an isolated area. It doesn't make for a pleasant trip for anyone. So, you know, these people don't get a lot of visitors. And being close to their God is important for death row inmates. So this was a big deal for them. So that's one thing. And then another time he was in the news, he was in another article from the Associated Press called Age-Related Illness Catching Up with Death Row. In the article, it says he wakes up each morning to sore hands and a creaking body, which to me, the key words there are that he gets to wake up each morning. Anyway, um, Randy was 59 in 2012 when this was written, and he's talking about how arthritis is so rampant on death row in Kentucky. Um, they all get arthritis. The death row lifestyle, it tends to accelerate age-related health problems like degenerative hips and achy hands and knees. Because keep in mind, they spend most of their time isolated in these cells that are 13 feet long, 12 feet high, and just six and a half feet wide. So at the time this article was written, there was a 35th person on death row. It was a female being housed in a different facility than Eddieville. But on average, their age was just over 50, which is an average of 14 years older than the 23,000 other inmates in the prison system in the state of Kentucky. Now, remember, all of these numbers are from 2012. Um, so in Kentucky, death row inmates were waiting for execution on average over 16 years, um, three years more than the average prison sentence. And 15 of the 35 had been on death row for over two decades. So these guys are spending a long, long time just sort of falling apart before they get executed. According to the Human Rights Watch, Nationally, 8% of the prison population in 2010 was over 55, compared to just 3% in 1995. So, I mean, this is significant. Our prison population is aging. And it begs the question, to what extent does the prison system have an obligation to keep these inmates healthy without imposing what would be considered cruel and unusual punishment? And, you know, to what extent should taxpayers have to pay for increasing prisoner medical expenses? It's all really interesting. So from 1976 to 2008, seven death row inmates in the state of Kentucky passed away from health-related issues, ranging from cancer to kidney failure. In the article, Height talked about how the situation leads men to consider suicide instead of you know, withering away, waiting for their execution day. He's quoted as saying that it's crossed his mind a few times and quote, it's truly a fine line being able to live in this kind of environment. Poor, poor Randy. That's sarcasm if you can't tell. So both articles Height has appeared in are him asking for more rights and better treatment. Take from that what you will. The current Kentucky death row statistics look a little different than they did when those articles were written. Um, according to the Office of the Fayette Commonwealth's attorney, 
The average age of death row inmates now is just 31 years old, with the oldest at the time of murder being 56 and the youngest just 20. 27 of the 33 death row inmates are white, five are black, one is Hispanic. So that is what I've got on Mr. Randy Height. As far as I know, he is still waiting for his execution. Um, I think he's, you know, probably pretty much out of appeals at this point. He's, he's made quite an effort. And um, I, if you guys enjoyed this, let me know. I plan on doing more like this. Um, so thank you for listening. Thank you guys for listening to the Randy Height episode. Um, I do not have a law degree, so if I messed up on any of that, just, you know, be patient with me. I do find it all so fascinating, and I really do try to get it all out to you properly. Um, That being said, I also just wanted to let you guys know I'm trying to do these episodes without getting too much into my opinion on the death penalty. I haven't decided if I want to go there or not with you guys, so for now, I'm just trying to get you all the facts and give you an interesting little story. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please remember to subscribe and review and share with your friends and please follow the Instagram as well. It's at KY History Haunts, the Facebook page, Kentucky History and Haunts. And thanks again. I look forward to sharing something with you all next time.